1: Welcome to episode 228 with my guest, Dan Smith. Today's episode was brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter the offer code MENTAL at checkout and you get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads—from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Uh, and if you're, if you're going and you're trying to find an episode, uh, around a particular theme, don't forget to use the search box on our, uh, homepage. Um, so you could type in a, you know, bipolar or something like that. And any episode that deals with it, uh, that has it in the description, that'll, it'll come up. And that, this is not to be confused with the search box for shopping at Amazon, which is just above it on the website. Anyway. Then they, uh, been an interesting week. Um, nervously watching uh, my Chicago Blackhawks advance into the St- Stanley Cup Finals. Um, they won the first game, so I'm uh, I'm 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 on a high, but it's not cocky. I got a little uh, a little pepper in my strut. <laughs> I don't know if that's a that's a phrase. Can we can we coin that as a phrase? Oh, he's got a little bit of pepper in his in his strut. <laughs> been playing way too much Scrabble. But you know, like when I get a a word that scores over a hundred points, you might as well just be shooting crack straight into my brain because it is, it is just the greatest feeling. My wife has been gone. She actually should be getting home any minute. Um, she, she, um, went on a little trip for a couple of days for work and, uh, I've been feeling guilty that I've been enjoying. <laughs> I've been enjoying being by myself so much, and so I talked to some of the other uh, people in my support groups and some friends of mine, and we all went around and and said basically the same thing. So I, I it made me feel better because I felt like at first I was like, I, "This is not right that I that I'm enjoying." Uh, the house being empty but uh well I, I mean i got herbert and ivory so it's never <laughs> herbert's oh six different pills uh, he, now he's got a, a bump on his uh gum line so i gotta coat his gums with uh, aurigel and oh my god he got a really short haircut and he's so fucking adorable but apparently it itches his butthole. So he's doing, we had his, his uh, you know, they expressed his anal glands. Uh, so it's not that, but he's, he does these circles because I guess the short hairs itch his butthole. So I'm having his spray. Oh, he is so lovable. He is so, so is Ivy. This show uh, I I really like this uh this uh, interview with uh, with Dan Smith. Um we haven't done many shows where the the topic of masculinity and um and PTSD around uh physical trauma um come up and uh, shut up Paul. I'm just going to read some surf. Let me just say this episode is survey uh, the, the interview with Dan is only about an hour long um, but I've got a shitload of surveys and uh, maybe I can find some words in there that I can use in Scrabble molest how many how many points is, is that seven the seven letter words are the ones that you score the big points on M-O-L now it's only 6 Kind of to find a a sad word worth seven letters my, my highest word I ever got, I crossed two, stretched across two triples. The word Nickered, N-I-C-K-E-R-E-D, 194 points. Seriously, I've never smoked crack by that. It has to feel like that. All right. Uh, we are going to, how did this get in here? Excuse me. My survey's just got all out of order. I could stress right now that it's five minutes in and I haven't even started reading the intro surveys, but I'm not going to. I'm going to play it fast and loose. I don't even know what that means. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a teenage girl who calls herself Alex Bitchels about her depression. She writes, clinical depression feels like being a corpse that everyone thinks is alive about her anxiety. It's like having a hummingbird for a heart and a hurricane for a brain. Boy, that is a good one. Uh, About having trichotillomania, Uh, she writes, it feels like an itch that I can't scratch and it's the most frustrating thing ever. This is same survey filled out by our friend Fruitsy Collins, a big supporter of the show, about his dysthymia. He writes, my first word after waking up for the past two months has been an exasperated fuck oh i relate to that uh and then he writes my medication is making me fat which is making me depressed but if i stop taking the medication i'll get depressed <laughs> i i you should probably say more depressed because otherwise why be on the medication uh this is filled out by serene serena uh, she's a teenager and about uh, having compulsive behaviors, she writes. is like having an annoying person tap you on the shoulder every few seconds. Snapshot from her life. Whenever my mom drinks... It seems like she wants to make me feel as uncomfortable as possible. I feel like a bitch for snapping at her, but it is sad that the only time I get to talk to her, she isn't herself. Tonight, I am laying in bed crying for something she has said while drunk, even though I know tomorrow she will get up perfectly fine with no memory of what she has said or done. I feel alone and hopeless. The worst part is my whole family sees nothing wrong with it. I just drown quietly while I try and finish school and get the fuck out of there. Yeah, I encourage you to get the fuck out of there and and maybe check out a a 12-step group for uh, the loved ones of alcoholics um, that can really help you find not only tools to cope, but uh, the comfort of people who know what it's like and know that it's fucked up. Uh, This is the same survey filled out by Leanne and Snapshot from her life, she writes, Using the Mental Pod Amazon banner gives me such an amazing feeling, as if I'm making some small contribution to the support, the podcast I adore so much, until I want to buy some remote-control vibrating panties and assorted adult toys to enjoy on a date night with my husband. Suddenly, I'm convinced Paul will somehow find out what a fucking pervert I am and secretly, or outwardly on the podcast, judge me as a person he is not and likely will not ever meet. Does the depth of my irrational angst ever reach the bottom? I'm ordering the fucking toys. Maybe. You know, the thing that I take out of that when I read that is that's so fucking awesome that you have a date night with your husband. I think that's beautiful. And order it and live it up. And just make sure when you come, you yell my name. This is same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself... <laughs> I fucking love the names you guys give yourselves. He calls himself systematically eating all this sugar in my house. <laughs> About his depression, he writes, it's like, well, maybe if I just got back to sleep, my dreams could be better than whatever I might do today. Uh, a snapshot from his life, he writes, "Simbalta gives me vivid dreams So during bouts of depression. Sleeping all day is kind of like going to a really crazy movie that I can never fully remember when I wake up but really enjoyed. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself Broke Down Babe about her depression. She writes, When I'm having a depressive episode, I feel like I slow down while everyone keeps going at normal speed. And when the episode is over, I have to sprint to catch up with everyone else. Boy, do I know that feeling. Uh, This was filled out by Body Hammer, who is a trans male. And he writes, I am so avoidant of my CPT... PTSD um, symptoms that uh, that sometimes I do nothing but sleep until I have to work and then come home and go right back to sleep, hoping no one will contact me all day, or that if they do, I will be asleep and miss it. Sometimes when my phone rings, I have a panic attack and throw my phone, hoping it will break. This is filled out by The Art of Flossing. Uh, She's a teenager and uh, she writes about her sex addiction. I'll screw anything with a sob story. And then finally, this is filled out by a guy who calls himself the weird neighbor who never leaves the apartment. His compulsive behavior is masturbation. He writes, I'm 36 and today I've jerked off five times so far. The first three times without my hand ever leaving my dick in between. Helps with the anxiety. And then a snapshot from his life, he writes, I'm 36 and still financially dependent on my mom. I have no education or any other marketable skills, and I hate people and the shit they say and do. When Hitler was my age, at least he already had a party going. My God, somebody
0: does what
1: I've been doing. You're ashamed. You have boundary issues.
0: I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell that is when I first felt love. Like I first felt reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just, I surrender. And I think I was 28, and that was the first time I ever experienced that, and it was amazing.
1: I'm here with Dan Smith, who is a uh, listener and lives in the uh, Southern California area. And we corresponded via email a little bit. And uh, you want to come and talk about uh, PTSD. And what's interesting about your story is you're a vet, but you didn't get your PTSD
0: from combat uh, overseas. Uh, no. Um, and <laughs> anytime anybody asks me about uh, my experience in the Gulf War, I always tell them there's there's nothing to tell. It was boring. We went there. I did my job. I was in the Navy. You didn't hear about any great, you know, Navy battles with the Iraqi <laughs> Navy. You didn't hear about no that. No
1: cannonballs launched across your bomb?
0: No. <laughs> nothing like that. We didn't break out the, well, we did break out the battleships, but uh, none of those uh, those things that you see on uh, on television. Sure, we launched a lot of aircraft, but by myself, nothing happened there. Um, so I got out, um, you know, came to came to work uh, eventually to uh, drive armored trucks, <laughs> and that's where that's where the trouble happened
1: do you want to lay any kind of groundwork before you talk about what happened?
0: Uh, just a little because, because one of the things that's a continuing theme for myself and, and any of my friends, any of my combat uh, veteran friends that, that have PTSD is you, you go into these jobs knowing this is what could happen. This is what is likely to happen. And you feel you're prepared for it. And you are to an extent. Um, but, uh, it's not like you get surprised with it. You, you know that that's the situation, so it's not one of these surprise events where you're like, "Oh my God, I don't know how this happened to me." I know exactly how it happened to me, <laughs> and so you you're prepared for it, sorta, of, when it happens.
1: I suppose um, you're prepared intellectually, but not uh, uh, emotionally.
0: How could you? How could you know what it's going to be no, like? You don't know. It's <laughs> I, I laugh a lot at people that will. They'll talk about like, oh, if I was in that situation, I'd do X, Y, Z. I'd put them down really fast. I'd start shooting first, and and I, I laugh at them like you have no idea how you're going to respond to that that. that. that is so not only stupid to say that, but <laughs> rude. Well, they don't say it in regards to my experience, but just in general, oh, people okay. will say that, and 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 I know you don't. You don't have any idea how you're going to react. You think you do, and you might be right, but you there's no knowing for sure.
1: Well, but, I can uh, tell you I would shit my pants, <laughs> and that I can back up
0: <laughs> Fortunately, I didn't do that um but I was worried about it uh well like i said i was a uh, i drove armored trucks um for banks um well it was a you know private company, so banks in this case, I was at a bank, but we' go to we went to major department stores we would go to you name the place you know mm-hmm. restaurants. Norm's Restaurant happened to be, you know, a, a, one of the reasons I was at the bank that day. Uh, but, you know, Target, those kinds of places, all over the L.A. County area. And, uh, and that morning, I was actually in my friend's place. It was a really nice route. Uh, it started early, got in early. What do you mean you were in
1: your friend's place?
0: Um, he went on vacation. And the routes are sort of like any other job. It's a position, like this particular route that goes to this area belongs to these two guys. It's a partnering up team where one man drives, the other one hops out and does the stop. Halfway through the day, you switch spots. And you you know bid based on your seniorities for the better routes that you like. And a very good friend of mine, a friend who friend to help me get the job, who I actually worked with in, uh, in law enforcement. I was also an L.A. City park ranger for a little while. He helped me get the job there real good close friends. He taught me everything I know about, uh, well, not everything, but almost everything I need to know about weapons and tactics and, and, and protecting myself and doing my job essentially better than the next guy. And he went on vacation and he said, Hey, I suggested to the management that you could come in and do this route. Cause I was just floating around. I don't, I think I've been on the job nine weeks. I just started. And what year was this? 1996. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, a, <laughs> it's almost 20 years ago. It's going to be next year. And, uh, it doesn't seem like it's been 20 years at all. Uh, so much of it is so recently vivid still. But uh, I said, great. I took the job. I was with his partner, which I knew really well. And that guy was a character. He was this uh, this uh, almost stereotypical Italian guy with the shirt open down to here and the gold chains all over with the grease back hair. Loud, really gregarious, friendly, friendly guy didn't look like he knew what he was doing he looked like a jerk you know but uh he was 82nd airborne in vietnam he was a reserve police officer in manhattan beach he knew exactly what he was doing that guy was my partner and uh we went to went to farmers and merchants bank in long beach and uh we shut the engine off because he would go around to the back door what we were doing was taking deposits in from the weekend from norm's banks or norm's restaurants and so he has a whole bunch of money from all the different norms from all of Raleigh County. take those into the bank, bring out a coin order. It's a small amount of money, it's so that they can have change to give people denominations of pennies, nickels, quarters, small stuff. not a big amount of money. looks big because it's all these big boxes. And uh, you know he's at the back, doing his thing, took the deposits in, was bringing the coin order out. And I'm new on the job, so I'm not complacent. I know what I'm doing. I'm watching the rearview mirror. Truck shut off because he didn't want to breathe those diesel fumes while he's back there. Back door's wide open, keeping my eyes open. And I see in the mirror, there's this black panel van coming around the corner. I hear the tires squealing, so I'm like, they're corning awfully fast. And so I start doing the math. Is this a robbery, or is it somebody driving dumb? I don't really know. And I sort of, I'm tracking the where the front of the van is driving if it aims, you know, past me on my left, I know it's just going to keep on going, but I pay attention to or do they keep turning? Do they keep coming around? Do they keep aiming in towards the the truck I'm in? And that's exactly what they do. And uh and where is your partner at this point? He, he's at he the back door. It? He's got his So back he still door. hasn't left no, to, to go bring the coins. Cuz this truck, we were the bank was on the corner. So it's not like it came down the street, it came around the corner and stopped right at us. And, you know, he was He was so good. He knew what he was doing. He slammed the door shut first thing he did because he didn't want them to be able to get into me. And uh, this portion he had to tell me later when I was in the hospital. So it's uh, it's vivid to me. It's like I saw it, but I didn't really see any of it. What I heard was a lot of gunfire, a lot of it. Um, But what he had done is he slammed the door. He knew what was happening. He didn't have to look. He didn't have to figure out. He drew his weapon. And turned and fired at the first person stepping out of the side of the van. That guy didn't even get a chance to shoot at us, um, and he uh, he shot him five times. And then another guy came out as he was falling. Another guy came out uh, carrying an automatic weapon, an assault rifle. Then uh, you know Vince didn't know how many rounds he'd shot at that point. He said, "I don't want to." He thought, "I don't want to tangle with this guy with the rifle. I want to get out of here." Didn't know if his gun was empty. I saw him run around the front of the truck and across the street so he could get behind cover. All this time, I'm on the I'm on the radio, um, but I'm in this position where I'm not sure what to do. I'm trained. They tell you, don't leave the truck, because if you leave the truck, you're leaving kind of a safe house. It's armored. It will protect you. If you get out, you're putting your life in risk, and you're also opening the door for someone to take the whole truck. And if they have access to the truck, they'll have no problem killing you. So I have my hand on the doorknob, I got the shotgun in my hand, and I want to open the door and shoot behind me at the, at the truck, at the van parked next to us, and there's all this doubt, because I'm looking through this narrow mirror, I can only see so much now as when you look through a rear mirror. If that's your only view of, of a dangerous situation, there's a, a ton of doubt, um...
1: In my head, I'm screaming, don't open the
0: fucking door. I didn't. Fortunately, (laughs) I knew better. I did know my job, but I I wanted to. And one of the other things I had doubt about as I was looking at the two people in the driver and passenger seats wearing uh, ski masks. And I was asking myself, can I legally shoot these people? Oddly enough, they were on their way to go skiing. <laughs> yeah, but... Uh, They're like, this works out perfectly. <laughs> I think that was maybe how they were funding their trip. <laughs> um, which, they only got $2,500, by the way. Wow. That's the only amount of money they got. So the one guy is killed. He's not dead. He's not dead, uh, but, but he's was, incapacitated. He's, he fell down, he dropped his weapon, he's out of the fight. Definitely... Uh, I'm doubtful about shooting these two because I'm looking at them going, nobody, I don't even see a gun in their hands. They're just sitting in the driver's seat. And that's one of the things that I still wrestle with is should I, would I have been able to shoot at them? Because the decision to keep the door closed was the right decision. It didn't work out well for me. I got shot anyway. Um, but uh, in, in moving back to that guy who was dead, my partner thought he was dead later in the hospital. And it was just he and I talking. He told me the whole thing didn't bother him, what he had to do, but he said what did bother him is when he shot that first guy coming out of the truck, he he saw the man fall, drop his gun, he was falling, he was out of the fight. He knew he was out of the fight, and he just automatically pointed his gun right at his face as he was falling and shot him one more time in the face. And he... That really bothered him. That's what messed with him. That's what kept him up at night, knowing that he automatically wanted to kill somebody who was no longer a threat and just did it without thinking about it, without anything else. The man happened to live. The bullet went through his, I think, his cheekbone, and it, and it went around his skull and took his ear off. And I think I have a picture somewhere of his ear sitting in the street, kind of like uh, <laughs> kind of like uh, um, uh, reservoir dogs with that ear sitting in the middle of the street amidst this scene. And that's how they, they caught everybody. But yeah, that was that was he thought he was dead, he thought he'd killed that guy. And uh and at this point I've decided I can't really engage these targets safely, I shouldn't anyway. And I've been trained like, Hey, when you're driving the truck, don't wear your bulletproof vest. You'll be more comfortable. It's LA, it's hot. So I don't have my vest on either. And I'm thinking this was a terrible plan. I don't know why they told me to do this. Where was your vest? It was just laying on the ground next to me.
1: You didn't have it wouldn't have made sense to reach over and put it on
0: at this point. No, everything's moving so fast. Oh, okay. it's, it's nothing that could be done quickly. Plus I'm in the truck and that's more protective than the, than the vest is. And I know not to get out anyway. So at this point it's a moot point, but that's how it is. When you, when it's your turn to get out of the truck, you put your vest on no problem. But I remember being on the radio and um, I'm reporting it. Cause I'm telling them, you know, we have a robbery in progress. You know, this is what's happening. And they're asking me all these questions. <laughs> is your hand shaking while you're doing that? I feel like I'm screaming into the microphone. I feel like I'm, I'm screaming at them. They tell me, like, can you, give me, you know, do, can you give me a description? Can you give me a license plate? And I tell them, I, I can't do that. We're being shot at right now. I'm in a gunfight. I feel like I'm freaking out. But uh, one of the mistakes that, that the office made is they have a policy when there's a robbery that they turn the speakers off. So the only the people, only the dispatchers in the office can hear what's happening. So not everybody in the place can hear what's happening. They forgot to do that. So I, all my friends, all the guys I worked with heard this happening and they said, I was just comms. And they said that, uh, I'm sorry, I can't, uh, can't tell you that information right now. We're in a gunfight. <laughs> Apparently Apparently they told me that's how I sounded when I was doing it. And, uh, and then that was when said, this the strangest thing happened. That's when things sort of turned and I remember this so vividly and I can't even hardly believe it myself. I remember looking in the mirror, seeing these guys and I swear I saw two gray dots appear on the mirror and then the mirror shattered. And and in that moment I realized I just saw the bullets. I don't know how you see a flying bullet in that context, but I and I can't figure out why did they shoot the mirror? That doesn't doesn't make any sense to me. Of course, what I find out is they're leaving, they picked up their friend, and they're shooting up the front of the bank and the side of the truck with me in it. What they don't tell you is that a high-powered rifle like that will punch through an armored truck, and it did. And I felt something that just felt like the lightest flick on your skin, on my side, on my left abdomen, and I remember thinking, oh, fuck, I just got shot, I think. And it didn't hurt, didn't hurt at all. And uh, I remember reaching for my side, looking at my hand, is there blood? And I I didn't see any at first. And then I started feeling lightheaded and I'm thinking, okay, I want to make sure my spine isn't injured. I want to keep myself from passing out. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to lay down on the floor of the truck and kick my feet up onto the seat. If I can do that, I can keep from passing out. And if I can actually move my body enough to get my legs up on the seat, my spine's okay too. So I'm going to be generally okay if I can pull this off, if I'm not dying. So I do that, and uh, I'm thinking, great, everything's moving. And then I manage to look at my hand, and it's and it's like a horror movie. It's just completely, you know, bright red. And I was worried about being locked in the truck, and that's the last thing. Time the the, the radio, people on the radio, the dispatchers were asking me, you know, what's uh, you know what, what's going on, what's happening now, and I tell them I can't talk right now. I've been shot, and that was the last thing I said, and uh, and that was definitely. God, that was the scariest moment because you're passing out so fast, uh, much path faster than you than I ever have before. So I'm pretty sure I'm dying. And I remember going through my head thinking, "Okay, uh, you know, I don't go to a lot of church. You know, uh, not sure about my my religious and spiritual standing. I know for sure I did my best to be a good man, and fuck, I hope that's good enough. It was just, it was so scary." and uh things blacked out so fast and i remember thinking you know this is this is the moment when you find out you know what happens when you die right this moment as i was passing out and uh you know i'm unconscious so i don't know i don't know anything after that point but uh i remember what had happened uh was my partner had seen me in the truck and and. Somehow he managed to get one of the doors open and hollered to me to to hit a door release that would open one of the other doors so he could get me out more easily. And I guess I was conscious enough to to reach up and hit a button. And they they pulled me out and they put me... The manager of the bank came out and my partner pulled me out and they laid me on the sidewalk. And for years, there were bloodstains still on that sidewalk. I went back every year to to go check it out and go talk to the bank manager. And I, I remember, just like a movie... It's hard not to laugh when I remember it because he was... In my field of vision, I'm laying flat on my back, screaming at me, Don't you fucking quit on me! Smith, get up! Wake the fuck up! And and it's like the most asleep you've ever been. Just, okay. Okay, I hear you. Okay. I'm trying to open up my eyes, trying to swim things into focus. As soon as I realize he's yelling at me, I realize I'm going to be okay. And so I have this flood of relief, like, fuck, I didn't die. (laughs) Let's take care of what's next, but at least that didn't happen. And I remembered, okay, I didn't, didn't get shot through my spine. I'm not paralyzed. I'm good. And then the paramedics came, and, uh, and when they put the oxygen on me, I didn't realize oxygen had such a euphoric feeling that comes with it. I felt like everything was good. I'm going to be fine now. I'm okay. I relax kind of how I feel now. I can't lift my arms. They're falling off the gurney. I have no strength in my body left. And, and the, the paramedics were such pros. They're telling me, you're going to be fine. Don't even worry about it. You know, this is, a, they didn't even tell me my situation. That's not what they're going to do. Mm. But I remember looking at them, going, you guys are doing a great job. You know, I really appreciate you helping me out like this. This is the kind of conversation I had with these guys. You know, and then there was the surgery and, uh, you know, the, the indignities that come with having a catheter put in front of a bunch of people and cutting my nice uniform off and all that stuff. Um, did you I, have clean underwear, Dan? I did have clean underwear, but they were pink. Were they really? (laughs) They were not. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I was also worried because I I was living with my brother at the time, and we had a roommate, so it was three single guys basically living in a house together. Great times. Everybody was out of town. Uh, Nobody had cell phones, and uh, I couldn't give them a number to call. I didn't know who the hell they should call to, to try to reach somebody, anybody in my family for this. I'm trying to remember the phone number of the school my mom worked at, and and they basically couldn't reach anybody eventually they did but uh, but they they, uh, I remember worrying about that when I went under for the surgery and uh, some of the stuff I don't remember was people did show up and my mom there's two big things that kind of happened while I was not conscious but I was told about it later my mom came in and saw me and nearly passed out herself so the nurses were like you need to step out here ma'am because not only can she not see the you know blood she's not good with seeing that but seeing her own son in that condition was awful i'm in intensive care right uh but my dad came in and he died three years ago uh and i miss him like crazy but i remember him coming in you miss him like crazy now you know i always did you know i mean even then it wasn't like we had a contentious relationship i just miss mm-hmm. him now but there was always this stress okay
1: uh, Your dad died three years ago from, from today. today. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm
0: sorry. If I, was I didn't unclear. know if you
1: meant three years ago from.
0: No, no, no. Uh, okay. But he came in to see me, and uh, and I was told that my my heart rate on the monitors shot through the roof. And I was telling him, I'm I'm sorry, Dad. I remember telling him, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, because I had this feeling of uh, uh, of failure. Like I let him down. Um, that I wasn't, and it wasn't so much that I lost the gunfight. I felt that later. But uh, but I felt like I got no way to pay my bills now. I don't know how bad I'm going to be hurt. I'm supposed to be living out on my own, and and that's sort of. I remember telling him I'm sorry, and uh, and the nurses pulled him out of there too because they saw my my vitals freaking out when he came in.
1: What do you what do you uh, think that was about? Why do you think your vitals
0: spiked when your dad came because in? Because I was I was stressed out because I always wanted him to be proud of me. You know, not in any any. A lot of relationship stuff I had with my father was atypical. We didn't have that clashing of heads. A little bit here and there, but not as a whole, fuck you, Dad, I'll do things my way. That kind of thing never occurred. But I always cared what he thought, and I always wanted him to be proud of what I did.
1: Did you ever feel that he was proud of
0: you? Oh, absolutely. It had yeah. nothing to do with him. He was absolutely proud of me. Um, it was all It was an inside job. As I say, it was all in my head, where if I felt like I wasn't doing well enough, I would think... Man, I don't know how proud he would be of me. I'm not sure.
1: Sorry, I'm just reaching over to grab
0: water. No worries. Um, but I was, you know, I was out for seven months. After that, uh, healed up pretty quick. I'd been shot twice in my left abdomen uh, because the bullets were slowed down by the truck. They didn't do a whole lot of damage. Uh, one round. So did they shoot through the truck when they were passing by you? Yep. They were driving by, just spraying the side of the truck, and I got hit twice. I mean, I assume they were aiming at me. It's pretty hard to, contrary to movies and television, it's really hard to hit something when you're moving and spraying rounds. you got to make a real effort and be very good to hit something. I'm sure there was some luck involved.
1: That must have been a hell of a rifle those guys had.
0: They were firing an AK-47. That pierces an armored car. Yeah, they did have, I believe, they were steel core rounds, and a steel core inside of a of a projectile uh, is a lot stiffer and stronger than than uh, copper and the traditional lead that's inside. It's very soft. It's meant to to deform and mash when it hits a target to cause more damage, but the steel core is much stronger and that'll that'll hold its shape going through steel. Mm. Um, but it went through my uh, it went through my pancreas. So nicked my pancreas, nicked my liver, uh, took out part of my spleen and went through my kidney. And that one lodged in my spine. Th- that's <laughs> an overachieving bullet. I know. <laughs> it went through a lot of things. And it, it lodged in your spine? It's still there. Yeah didn't feel it my back felt fine um but i had a friend who was an x-ray tech and some years later i saw pictures they were able to show me pictures and they were like oh well, we're just going to leave it there but he took a shot from the front and from the side so that i could see that it wasn't in front of my spine or behind my spine and then from the side it was the same thing that the bullets in the bone of the spine again i don't feel it doesn't no, hurt no nerve damage no none surprisingly um, and the other one, for some reason, slowed down a lot and just stopped at my rib. We have to use that x-ray as your picture for the website. <laughs> <laughs> Gladly. I have it Do you? I have it handy. Yes, okay. I do. <laughs> when you get home, uh, email that to me. Uh, absolutely. Um, and it's, there's a nice pretty you know, uh, arc of shrapnel inside the picture as well because uh, as the bullet goes through the door, naturally there's a lot of fragments of the door coming with it oh wow and that that peppered my arm for about a year i was picking out little pieces of gray metal that were that were just under the skin of my arm nothing major um but i healed up pretty good i was in the hospital for 15 days and just did you make the news oh yeah 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 yeah. i made i made the evening news made the paper um you know it still exists you can still go to LATimes.com and, and and look it up. It's still that there. That was
1: right around the time, too, where there was a ton of bank robberies, the uh, North Hollywood yep. bank robbery. I remember yep. I was about two, three miles away from that, and
0: all of a sudden, there were like mm-hmm. five helicopters. Yeah. That was less than a year after I went back to work, uh, after uh, after my shooting, and I was my day off. I was still working at the armored car company, and uh, I remember seeing it on the news going, holy shit. I know because I'm familiar with what's happening there, and uh, so I watched it live uh, that morning. Um, Did it bring up stuff? No, the stuff that came up was was always strange. It was always unpredictable. That was my major problem with all. this. I've always been real self aware of how I feel and uh, what's going on with me. I could figure it out pretty quickly if I just paid attention. I, I was never I never liked bullshitting myself, but this was one of those things where I had this overwhelming sense that. There was a whole lot going on behind the curtain with me that I had no access to, and that I always had the control I always had the understanding of what was happening with me that I didn't have anymore and that was very disturbing um because I thought i'm going to be fine and I went to therapy uh shortly after that, and uh, uh, th-
1: by your by your own volition. Uh, uh, or did they uh i
0: believe it was recommended i can't yeah. i don't remember for sure uh but certainly i was was open to it yeah you know they, they i'm sure the doctor and, and i can't imagine my employer told me to go to therapy but it must have been something along those lines because you know i'm their employee they want me to come back they're footing the bill for all this um and i remember telling the doctor that uh i just want to you know work through this and get better and go back to normal and he, he laughed in my face he says you don't you don't go back to normal uh this this is how how it's going to be from now on and uh and that's one of those things even within the last year i realized uh, at times i'm in denial Uh, i manage it very well now really well um but it puts me in a place where i think i'm cured you know and i don't uh and I realized I have this arrogant attitude that I shouldn't have to put up with this shit. You know, I'm this guy, you know, I've I served in the military, I've been in law enforcement. You know, I'll have a gunfight in the streets and it's, uh you know, I can make it through, it'll be okay. Um, But I realized I shouldn't have to deal with it. And I realized that's, that's such bullshit. That's such denial of, no, I do have to deal with it. Um And... Because it it crops up only in the last few years has it not been a constant thing that I thought about.
1: Take me through the progression from um, after you got shot through today, what you've (sighs) experienced related to that.
0: The first night there were just, there were dreams, constant dreams. But I I was also on morphine. They gave me a lot of pain medication. And uh, to this day, I can't stand morphine because I can't sleep. It's it has me dreaming too much. It's too active. My head goes is too active. And that's not my normal state. I can sleep fine. Anyone who's served in the military, you get fifteen minutes to put your head down, you do it and you go to sleep. You learn how to do that. And not when I'm on morphine. Just every my head's spinning, all the images are coming and I can't stop them. And then when I'm awake I'm completely tired. I can hardly have a conversation with uh, you know with anybody. So the first night there were just constant dreams of shooting, Nothing. Scary, Nothing like, you know, the way you see in the movie. So much of it was so different than the movies for me. But just this constant stress or pressure. Like, there's always a shooting going on all night long. And uh, the dreams went away pretty quick. With one ridiculous exception I'll tell you about in a, in a little bit. Uh, By the way, did they
1: catch all three guys?
0: They, uh, they told us there were five, I think. They caught the one guy that my partner shot. They knew who the others were. Uh, the guy that my partner shot did go to prison and you know I testified so I was in court uh, and I would meet these police officers that were familiar with the case and they would tell me yeah we know this guy uh, was involved and it was just a a case of not having enough evidence to to actually charge them with a crime to be able to prosecute which is understandable and having worked in law enforcement before that I sort of understood I've sort of understood that you might not get him for this crime, but this is a bad guy. He's going to do something else. Somebody else will get him for another crime. And then the point being, we want him off the street. If we don't get him off the street for what he did to me, fair enough. As long as he's off the street, the end result's met. And there uh, were <laughs> enough stories about those guys being in prison for other things. And in my favorite story, which, I don't know, kind of satisfies my embarrassed sense of vengeance, because i do not not a vengeful kind of a person, But there were stories about those guys dying in prison. And the one that I like, dubiously, is that uh, they'd heard one of the guys went to prison and died there, but there was no autopsy. And what these police officers told me is that if a prisoner dies uh, in prison and there's no autopsy, that's code for the guards beat him to death. We're not going to investigate this. He died in a beating. End of story. And I always liked that one because I wanted to think that uh, that there were guys, uh, there were other men out there thinking you don't get to do this, not to our people, not for me personally. You know, I don't know any of those people. I don't know any prison guards, but that one made me feel some measure of comfort, but also embarrassment as well. Because you know, I, I like that there's a justice system. I don't feel the need to to rage it at the people who did this or anything to that extent, but certainly king's okay with me. Yeah, <laughs> you, and you can't
1: deny that that's an emotion no. that came up in you.
0: No, not at all. I was happy to hear I it. I appreciate you being
1: honest about that. Thanks. Especially on this show, because you know we're so touchy-feely. Everybody's okay, and well, you know, yeah, everybody's sick, and everybody's doing the best they can. Right. I appreciate you saying, fuck that guy. He had it coming.
0: Uh, yeah, right. uh, absolutely. Um, but uh, it, I, I was starting to experience... That I could, What I can only call is flashbacks. And they're not, again, not nothing like the movies. I wasn't transported to another place. I didn't have a, another vision happening in front of my eyes, although I expect that does happen to some. Um, but I would... I, I would. It's like the tachometer in my fight-or-flight experience would just immediately go to the top of the red zone. And the first time it happened, I was watching the movie Heat. I was, I was back in the house. I was living in the house again. I'd gotten out of the hospital... I've been wanting to see that movie. We rented it on uh, VHS. That's how long ago that was. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that big scene where they're having the shootout in the streets of, of Los Angeles, um, I will tell you that that is an extremely realistic sound. The way it sounded is exactly what a real gunfight sounds like. And I was just, I was sitting there alone. My roommates were out of the house. And I was instantly sure that the men that we, they were still looking for were coming to the house, and they were now coming for me. And it was it was terrifying because I knew that wasn't happening. I didn't hear any sounds. There was no real evidence, but my body and my and my my drive to fight it was completely engaged. I, I remember I I still had these stitches all the way down my stomach, and they'd cut me from the sternum to you know, to the top of my cock to get me open to do this exploratory surgery.
1: It's a good look, by the way. It's
0: great. (laughs) It still hurt like hell to do that. (laughs) So I'm crawling on the carpet, you know, trying to stay below the windows, trying to get to the bedroom, to get to my weapon, to make my last stand. And the whole time I'm thinking, this is fucking stupid. Why am I acting like this? You know, there's nobody here. But I couldn't stop myself. I had to do it. It was like a, almost like an OCD ritual where I had, I have to do this thing. I know it doesn't make sense, but I have to do it. To comfort yourself like yeah, that like that was your only way to calm yourself absolutely. down. Absolutely. And so I, I crawled into my room, I shut the door, I loaded my weapon, and I sat on the corner of my bed and waited it out.
1: And how long did it take to calm down? I don't even remember. <laughs> did anybody else know what you were going no. through?
0: No. And that's, that's the thing that um, a lot of what I, I, why I want to do this is because I know there are a lot of veterans that uh, that don't want to approach this that don't want to they don't think anybody else understands um, and one of the reasons why is uh I always felt this disproportionate tremendous shame that to this day I can't explain I don't know why it feels so shameful to respond like that uh, part of it is you know because it's a it's a masculine job I'm, I'm it's my job to arm up to find the bad guys and put them down even if it's a dumb security job. It's the same thing. If someone comes for you, you put them down first. That's the job. And your ego gets into it. But I'm not tied to that kind of ego. I don't... That's what happened. You know, even though I reviewed what happened in the shooting for years, trying to figure out how I could have done differently to do better, that doesn't explain the amount of shame. But I was just... Every flashback I had, I just felt this unbelievable shame. And I didn't want anybody to know that I was freaking out so hard about these, these little things. And I knew I wasn't risked anybody. I wasn't going to shoot anybody. It was nothing like that. But I needed to get into the corner and make my last stand, You know, knowing that I'm probably going to die, but I'm going to kill as many people coming through that door as I can before it's over. And knowing that that's ridiculous. It's not happening. It's completely fictional. So that was the thing that I always felt. It was one of the things why I didn't want to talk about it. It's why it's it's hard to... to articulate that shame. I don't know where it comes from. And I imagine a lot of people feel a lot of it is because you're the tough guy. You know, you have planned for this. You have prepared for this and you know how to handle it. And frankly, you know how to handle it when you've been shot too. you know, you keep moving. If your body keeps working, don't worry about it. You'll be okay. You know, and all the things they teach you about like, Hey, if you get hit by a handgun, 80% of people shot by a handgun survive, you're going to be fine. Keep moving. Keep in the fight. Don't just quit because you got hurt move forward well i would imagine too a lot of people
1: you know the way our brains work uh, especially with like sexual trauma is you'll f- fantasize about going back and having some sense of control oh, over it and <laughs> I, it, it makes sense that that you would want to do that when you experienced something that was chaotic or out of your yeah. out of your control yeah And and the other thought that occurs to me is, you know, the way that your partner reacted was like out of a fucking movie. Oh, yeah. So
0: who wouldn't feel less masculine compared to that guy? Yeah, it's my job to win gunfights, essentially, you know, and it didn't do my job. I see it as, (laughs) as your job to keep the money from getting stolen, which you did. Right. Well, both what I said and what you said are not true. Um, it's not your job to protect the money. Your job is to protect yourself. Uh, and even in, in a lot of my training, when we, we did these scenarios, first thing I would do is drop the money. Money's insured. I'm not going to give my life for any amount of money. I'm going to keep myself from dying. They can have the money. If I can buy my own life with the customer's money. Fair enough. You can have it. You're not going to take my life, but even sit, you know, taking care of the bad guys wasn't my job. It was just to simply survive. That's it. That's my job. Not get killed which is pretty simple in theory. <laughs> how did your partner, uh, was he a,
1: he sounds like he was a hardened yeah. combat veteran from yeah, from Vietnam. So yeah. um, how did, did he have any fallout
0: emotionally from? We talked just a few times in, in that, that moment in the hospital when it was just he and I, and he told me that that, about you know, shooting how the guy he felt in the about face. shooting that guy in the face. He felt he was trying to murder a person. Because he understood the difference between stopping a threat and deliberately killing somebody that isn't a threat anymore. And that bothered him, that he had the the will, the desire to murder somebody. And, uh, and he retired a few years later, and he even told me, when I retire, I'm gone, I'm off the grid. You know, he had a P.O. box, he didn't give anybody his phone number. He just wanted to retire with his wife and disappear, which he did, and I haven't heard from him since. But he was a happy guy, so I assume he's still doing okay. So to pick up
1: uh, the thread, so you had the the kind of the flashback when you're watching the movie Heat. Right.
0: And it was always some little thing like that. Uh, I went back to Buffalo to visit a friend for his wedding, Uh, actually a friend of mine from the war. And we drove over a piece of gravel in the road. Now you hit a piece of gravel and you hear it pop on the the, Mm -hmm. the underside of the carriage. I was certain it was a gunshot. You know, and he and his his fiancee were in the front seat talking to each other, and I'm checking my side like I did that day, trying to see if there's blood on my hands for about five minutes. You know, I'm sitting there looking at them, going, "Are they aware we got shot at?" That was my that was Mm -hmm. my benchmark. If they look like they're being shot at, then we really are getting shot at, and it's a problem. If they look like they're just talking and laughing and have a good time, then we're not getting shot at, and it's just me, and I need to settle the fuck down. (laughs) So it sounds like
1: your body reacts in a way that is so intense
0: that you can't help but believe there must be some truth to it on a physical level you know like i said you know academically intellectually i can see it there's everything's fine here um and that's sort of you know i had a few of those moments they were all sort of the same but over the years they got less intense um and towards the end i would learn to tell on myself i would call a good friend of mine and say hey look, I'm feeling like this right now. You know, I don't know why. Nothing even happened, you know, but now I feel like I need to get the hell home and, and arm up and put my armor on and get ready to do this thing just so that I could say it because it sounds so stupid, you know, especially in the face of the shame, I would feel about feeling that way and it removed some of the shame to be able to just say something that ridiculous and go, yeah, it removes the power of it for me. Um, But the thing that haunted me day in and day out wasn't so much the flashbacks is you already kind of got to it saying that, I always reviewed it. How could I have done better? What did I do wrong? Should I have shot those two guys in the front seat? Would I be in prison today for killing people just sitting there looking at me? They were obviously engaged in a robbery and it makes them good targets, but specifically in court? I don't know. I would hate to be sitting in prison over that. I'm glad I didn't for that reason, just because that risk seems awful, but uh, the thing I realized shortly before I emailed you, because I've been listening to the show for a while and was just in awe at the at, at the... The candor that everybody has, uh, you know, feels like I'm having a very close, personal, intimate conversation with you and your other guests. And I realized this entire time, I desperately wanted to have the shootout again. I didn't realize I did, but that's exactly what I wanted. I wanted to do over. I wanted to do this thing and I wanted to win the fight so that when my dad comes in, I don't have to tell him I'm sorry. I can tell him, yeah, we fucking got those assholes. You know, I'm doing good. <laughs> you know, that's what I wanted—not so much for my dad, but just for my own peace of mind. I couldn't let it go for years and years and years.
1: Where do you th- where do you think that? Do you think it's society's pressure on us to be masculine? Do you think it was just your own personal thing?
0: It's my own personal thing for sure. Uh, like, like I said, there may be societal pressure. I've never really felt too pressured by that. You know, I'll do what works out for me. You know, and if somebody else is—they're is, not too pleased about it—it's like, well, your opinion of how I live my life—I kind of don't give a shit. You know, these are decisions I make for me and make the best ones I can. I don't make them for you. So I don't really feel that. I think others may a little bit, but, but yeah, I'm also wired like every other man where, no, no, I don't like to lose, especially when it's something I take pride in. I'm, I'm very good with weapons. I'm very good tactically. You know, I've proven myself over and over in training, you know, mm. and I would, I would joke with some of my other friends. I'd tell them like, I'm. I'm 0-1 you know, <laughs> for shootouts, but I can tell you I don't rattle.
1: <laughs> you know, the more I hear about people having experienced trauma and the ripples from it, um, I'm really beginning to, to to realize that one of the most profound injuries is the obsession to be the
0: Monday morning quarterback. Oh, yeah. it's it's It doesn't stop. It was every day. It was this anxiety for years and years and years. I'm, I'm past it now mostly because i had really great really close personal male friends that that uh one of them was a veteran but he never saw any combat he never went to any any action didn't matter though but he understood they all understood cuz they're all men they get that ego of like you know fuck yeah i'm here to win kind of mm-hmm. attitude that we all have on some level to some degree from and certain areas when
1: i'm in my recliner in my underwear i call it a hot zone does that count as combat
0: uh, fair enough <laughs> if you feel like you're winning if you have that brush actually i usually got feel, this shit. i usually good. feel like a loser <laughs> that's well, uh, why i watch netflix <laughs> yeah. um, netflix create your own hot zone yeah absolutely um, uh, go ahead well there was a dream i, I alluded to earlier that i had that that it keeps coming back. I only had it one time. It's not a recurring dream, but it was so profound that uh, I know, I'm, I'm going through a divorce. I've been separated for, I don't know, getting close to a year and a half now. Um, the, the big, awful pain is over, but I mention it because it's all very relevant. That dream kept coming back. I kept thinking about this dream. And I don't know, I must have had it eight years ago, maybe 10 years ago. It's been a while, but. I had this dream where I was actually at Malibu, up at Point Doom. I don't know if you've ever been out there. They got that mm-hmm. road along the cliffside there and the parking lots there. And I was walking along the cliffside. It was at night. And I was I was part of some kind of paramilitary operation. I don't remember it. It was a dream. So that part's super foggy. But something really bad was going to happen, like, you know, uh, bigger than 9-11, kind of bad something really really awful is going to happen and so i'd been tasked with these other guys uh, to do this to do this thing and you know i'm there and i've got my i've got my vest on i got my kit i have my rifle i'm wearing civilian clothes kind of that cool guy look you see in movies and there's a line of people standing like in a queue like they're going to go to the movies or something along that road along the cliffside and it's at night and there's this overwhelming sense of urgency and danger and if I don't do my job as quickly as I can and get it over with really bad things are going to happen to a whole lot more people and my job was to walk down this line of people and execute every one of them and it was 50 100 people, and I couldn't see the end of it and I was walking down this line with my rifle putting two rounds into each one's face pop 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 and I run out of ammunition reload put another magazine and keep going keep going and That was all right for some reason, but every once in a while, I would see a face of a friend, somebody I knew close, a really close friend, and those rounds would be out and through their face before I even registered that that, I just shot Mark. It doesn't matter. I have to keep moving. Don't feel that. Keep moving. And it's so disturbing because I would keep seeing their faces. I think I shot him in front of his daughters, and it was just so hard to do, but I had to keep moving. Because there was this greater threat, there was this greater good that had to be served that it didn't matter, and trying to put that away and keep moving was was awful and obviously I, I woke up in a, extremely agitated and uh I never forgot it and, and and I mean, you're getting emotional talking about it now it's, I mean imagine if you had to kill your friends and family how do you do that? You know, and and it took me a while to kind of figure out why that was relevant to the divorce um it always felt connected to the shooting i don't know why because that was not even close to the situation i was in but i also remember uh having to end my marriage because i was hurting so bad that there was this this greater good that i had to serve that i had to you know end my family which would have been fine if it was just the two of us married, but we have a daughter. And so I felt like I was destroying my family um, because I needed to. There was no question. I had no doubt that I, that was what I needed to do to survive. Uh, My health was was spiraling out of control. I just had this, this intense anxiety all the time. Uh, I felt like I couldn't get any traction with, with my wife to, you know, for her to even understand what it is I needed, let alone be interested in what I needed. And I kind of figured it out that that's, that's why I kept thinking about that dream. Cause I had to do something awful to, to survive and I, and I didn't like it, but there it is. It had to happen. When was the first time you had the dream? I can't even remember. Like I said, maybe eight, ten years ago. It's been mm-hmm. quite a long time, but uh, it's still fresh. Thank God I only had it the one time. If I had to keep living that dream, I don't know what I would do. Um, but it's also you know control i mean that's a big part of of the ptsd is you don't like that lack of control and even in in the dream there was control because i was taking active participation in something as awful as it was it was going to it was going to solve something it was going to make something happen I, I had the initiative and i was moving forward not just allowing something to happen to me maybe that's where the part of the shame comes from now that i think about it is i felt like i just allowed myself to get shot you know which feels so passive and so bullshit, you know, when you spent your time in the military and, and training for this job and you spent a lot of time on ranges and you know, combat ranges, you know.
1: But who in their right mind would have gotten out of a car when all you could
0: see nobody of the scene was a little tiny rear view mirror? Nobody. Uh, that's the thing. That's the conclusion I kept coming back to. That's why I kept doing the math in my head over and over again is there's no choice. You don't get out. You simply don't get out. Could I believe they could shoot through the truck? No, I had no idea they could do that. See, I, I honestly believe some of that
1: shame is is from movies. I really do, because in oh, the movies, yeah, no the doubt. guy would have got out, mm-hmm.
0: and he would have done the stupid thing. Maverick guard, plays by his own rules. Yeah. Fuck the rules. I got a better plan. Yeah. I, I'm sure you're right. You know, I knew better, but you know, it didn't, didn't change how I felt. Um, but yeah, I do keep coming to the same conclusion. I did the best I could, knowing what I did at the time. You know, because part of it was just not being able to see. I didn't know if there was a guy standing right there at the door waiting for me. So I'm not stepping out; that would be dumb. <laughs> you kept coming to the same conclusion. Still wanted a better result, but uh, couldn't have. There's no way I really could have thought of a better way to do it. And it was just.
1: And did you break any kind of ground in therapy?
0: No, that was the thing, and that's why it, you know felt like I just showed up and reported to him. I see.
1: And then you went to therapy again?
0: Recently for Recently. the divorce. That's okay. right. Different person, obviously, different different situation, okay. different everything. But, but the thing, I guess he did more good than I give him credit for, because I thought I was just going to get over it and move forward. And, and he was like, nah, that's not how it works. And, and that always stuck with me, that you just figure out how to, how to manage it. Um, but other than that, I just felt like I would show, show up and tell him how I was feeling. i be like, great, see you next week. This was the first therapist. Yeah. That's how it felt like the whole time. And, uh, so I did a lot of the healing on myself, but like big chunks of it were with, with guys I knew really well. And, and I bring them up because it's a little more structured than just a bunch of dudes hanging out at a bar. Um, you ever heard of a men's division familiar with that Mm -hmm. at all? It's, uh, (laughs) it's basically a bunch of guys. This is a non-religious nonprofit. It's, strictly for its own purposes, uh, for men to get together and to, to cultivate, you know, masculine relationships, intimate masculine relationships, obviously not sexually, but where you can really talk about how you feel with other men, uh, who understand where you're coming from. And the purpose of it is to basically make you a better man, make you a better father. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's it's a structured relationship you're divided up into teams you call them teams you're not a group you say group in one of those places someone's going to sock you in the arm pretty hard Mm -hmm. and point out to you what's a group it's a bunch of people we're not a bunch of people what's a team it's a bunch of people working on the same goal together so verbiage like that was used all Mm -hmm. the time and i would bring it to them i'd tell them look you know i want to you know this this is something i'm struggling with so even though none of them pretends or even tries to be a therapist just sort of having that healthy relationship to talk about it and to just drag it out of the dark you know whenever necessary and let it see light and realize it's just not it's not the threat to me as i thought it was it would help it helped a lot you know and so that was really the the big chunk of it so it's like it's unconventional therapy; it's not what it was meant for, but that's certainly what I got out of it.
1: Well, you know, one of the support groups I go to um, on on Thursday nights is uh, it's a men's okay. uh, support group, and uh, I think I've probably done experienced the most growth mm-hmm. and um, feeling like I'm moving forward yeah. with with that group of uh men mm-hmm. there is really something special and and i hear women say the same thing about oh yeah um their support groups um, yeah i i think i i think there's um less posturing when people aren't thinking well you know i might ask her out on a date or
0: <laughs> yeah you know. well there is and that's and that's part of the reason why you know blood soldiers that was my men's division's blood soldiers a lot of hyper-masculine stuff, but the point being is, is, part of it is sort of pushing back against this feminization of your relationships with other men. You know, I don't need to talk to you about, uh, you know, what shirt I bought at, uh, at Urban Outfitters or anything like that. It's really having that straight talk, a lot of uh, sort of a warrior motif, like if we're the guys that you get together with after the battle, we will patch you up. And we will prop you up and we will let you help you get back out there. Your life being the battle, it's all a metaphor for, you know, we're not swinging clubs at each other anymore, but we're competing in that workplace. That's a battle. You know, you got to figure out how to succeed at that. And you got guys around you that'll be like, yeah, hey, how about you not be a pussy and stand up and go get that job you want? Like That's what you do, right? That's what you want, right? What's stopping you? That kind of relationship with men that you can feel truly, genuinely care about you, well, it's, it's inspiring. It helps mm. you get up and get moving.
1: Does it ever get a little too much, and you're like, all right,
0: this is a little too bro-y for uh, me because no because there are a lot of things in place uh largely the, the huge honesty mm. you know where if you feel like you can tell them you know, do you have any fucking idea what you're talking about Tell me to do that you, you know you get to have that conversation I've been to a lot of meetings where you know blows are almost thrown you know because no you're not gonna put up with that crap you can tell someone you have no idea what you're talking about stop it you know they there there are ways to let it feel that way. And then I'll tell them, you know, before I left the division, you know, I was, I was a team leader. I loved these men. I love taking care of them. And, and it, I was able to say, you know, Hey, you understand that like, there's maybe three of you in here that I care about. Like all the rest of you, you keep bringing your same problems. You keep doing nothing about it. I'm not going to waste my time on you, which is really good, hard truth. And there's no bro in that at all. And you always have this context of like, I'm, if I didn't care about you, I would just tell you, keep up the good fight, man. You're doing awesome, which is a lie. And you don't, there's no place for lies like that in there. And mm-hmm. we had a saying that, uh, that says the better you try to look in here, the worse you look to us. So that bro shit goes right out the window, <laughs> mm-hmm. but the worse you look in here, the better you look to us. So when you get some guy that comes in there and says, I, I, I don't know what to do. You know, I feel like I'm failing my kid. You know, this, I did this, I did X, Y, Z. I sat in my car and got drunk while my kid was inside by herself. Guys will say shit like that to you. And they're open and clear about their pain and their shame. And that's where it's like, you're a good man. So it's a safe place to cry. Absolutely. It's a safe place to, to say all that shit. Cause that's, you know, it's based on, you know, it's based on this, uh, you know, with everything that stays in the meeting, confidentiality stays yeah. in the meeting, and, uh, nobody ever tells you about it. It was almost like the, our wives would be, they would say, well, what happened? And everybody would be like, nothing. And we just got together, and hung out. That was the party line. And so a lot of wives would eh, kind of in a fun way get frustrated. Like, you guys aren't going to tell us what you do. And we're like, no, we're not going to tell you what we do. Sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that made it such a strong, safe place, especially, you know, when these guys would have your back that, you know, if somebody else's wife, if my wife were to go talk to one of them and ask me like, Hey, what's going on with Dan? The party line was also, your husband's a great man. You know, I know this about him, I know this about him, I know this about him, and they would always sort of prop you up. There was none of this, yeah, I understand, we're working on him with that, you know, I understand Mm it's bullshit. That conversation never ever happens, because you're selling that guy out. You're trying Mm -hmm. to help him to be the best man he can, and you undermine that by doing anything other than going, your husband's a great man. Mm -hmm. You know, we love having him on the team. And that makes a wife feel proud of her husband to hear other men say that. So, where do you where do you feel like you're at
1: today with uh, all of the stuff? Doing well.
0: Um, you know, Are the, you
1: still in the second therapy?
0: No, I'm not in any therapy right okay. now. I, I need to go back. I'd like to go back um, uh, because again the the divorce I bring up because it's it's so very relevant. Because let, let me
1: ask this: the first therapist that you went to mm-hmm. after the incident, mm-hmm. how soon after the incident was it? And how I'm many sure t- within a month. And how many times did you go?
0: I went every week for probably six months or more. Okay, it was a good chunk of time. I don't think I was still seeing them after I went back to work. I was out for seven months. Um, but the point is, I have this thing with my stress now, and I remember learning about how you know your your amygdala is like this stress thing. It's it's, it's your you know there's no cognitive reasoning there at all, and it'll get it for no reason. It'll go up into the red and stay there. Or if it does get, if I do get stressed out for reasonable things, I have this experience where I can't come back down. You know, when we bought our house, when everything was done, everything worked, we were moved in. I couldn't enjoy it for like a month. I was just stuck in this super anxious, super stressed out state that just wouldn't let off. And that's what happened with the divorce. I just, as things would get better, it didn't matter. I just hung on to the super high stress. I would, I would have these minor victories that have always been something that fueled me up and kept me going and i couldn't enjoy any of them and uh and i started having this you know heavy depression that i'd never experienced before i didn't know how to deal with that that's why i went to therapy because it was it was sucking the life out of me and uh and fortunately that's fewer and far between those uh
1: do you think the depression was related to the marriage falling apart or the ptsd or both
0: uh Related to the marriage, uh, but the PTSD kept me in that stressed out level where I couldn't figure out how to relax. And do you think the PTSD hurt your marriage? No, uh, I don't, You know what? You, I don't know. You'd have to ask her. I do know that it hurt her to see me in pain, and there was—I don't remember any of this, but apparently for years we would be laying in bed, and and she, I would be asleep, and she would feel my hand laying on her body, and she would feel my my. My, my forefinger, like I was pulling a trigger, I would keep pulling a trigger with my finger on her body over and over again. And I would tell her, get down, get down, get down. And I guess I did that for years. Wow. And, uh, and so that was something she had to deal with. I don't remember any of that. Obviously I was dreaming dreams. I don't even remember, but it just sort of gave her sympathy. So I don't know. I don't know how much stress there was for her around that. I don't think so. She never really indicated it was a problem and I would expect her to, um, but you know it's i learned certain things about myself i learned that the depression would be okay if i you know if i got some help if i talked to people about it and uh, if i just held on because for me it always disappear after a while i knew that eventually that stress would go back down it would just take a lot longer i wouldn't know how long but it wasn't going to go away immediately And you know,
1: and was this always the case with you, even before the incident? Not at all. Okay, not at all. So it's definitely something that yeah,
0: yeah. It was one of those things that was happening behind the curtain that I couldn't see. I couldn't understand why I felt this way. It made no sense to me. But as I learned about how it works, um, that's how it worked for me, and uh, it's going much better. Certainly, you know, I have a have a new relationship that uh, she I drag her through. Some of this, but she's so open and understanding, and is just happy that I'm willing to to share with her, you know, what happened, what's happening to me. Last time I went to the bank, I went with her. Uh, we were on a date, well, quite a while back, and uh it was the anniversary of the shooting, which actually we're coming up on it. It was uh, it was June 10th, '96, and um I took her to that spot because it was right nearby where we were. I'm like, hey, let's take a side trip. I want to go see this thing, and I told her the story. and uh, The bank was gone now; they tore it down. They're putting in apartment buildings. And that felt like a bunch of closure, because I'd done that every year. Even the first year when I went back, I didn't want it to be a somber thing. I would go in. I would. I took the day off. I'd ride my motorcycle out there. I would just sort of celebrate being alive. And just that general positive attitude helped me through. It's how you know the divorce was going okay, because I knew it would get better. I knew that I have somewhere in me there's an overriding positive attitude that eventually will shine through the crap. And it always does. And it did. And it does. That's why it's getting better you know, all the time, and, uh, and and it's serving me well. You know, uh, struggling there at work a little while, well, not you know, a little while, not doing so well, but I'm doing much, much better now. You know, plus the relationship with my daughter is the best thing. I love it.
1: Are you still at the the uh, armored car thing? Or oh no, else? no, okay. no, no!
0: i work for LA City now.
1: Okay. Um,
0: I left that job two and a half years after the shooting. I had to go back. You know, it was one of those things I my ego sort of demanded it, but it was also like, I had to know that it wasn't going to break me. I had to go back and do the job. I went back and did the route, you know, I went back to that very bank. That's was fine, you know, but, uh, certainly there was a little bit of like, here we go. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm doing good, <laughs> you know? Uh, but yeah, no, I've, I've, I left that job to come to the city and, uh, that's been great. So the, the career is fantastic. Cause you know, there's no future in that. I mean, you're a young man and you're, trained it's like oh yeah, maybe i'll do that job for a little while uh,
1: what percentage of people who drive armored cars wind up uh getting into something
0: i can't say for sure i'm gonna say low if i had to ballpark it 10 okay it mostly doesn't happen guys through their whole go through their whole career nothing happened once in a while it does when you hear about it it's huge sometimes it's huge um but no it's not real common it was a real small club i think there were like three guys that I worked with that had had live shootouts. And one of them, he never left the, the barn. He stayed there. He worked in the building because the money coming in and out doesn't just go to the trucks. We have our own vault there uh, as it, we transited to other places like any other shipping company. He worked in the vault from then on out. And his problem was that he'd uh, a fragment of a round he fired killed a kid. Oh, and, uh, wow. Yeah. And, it wasn't his fault. There's no chance for it to be his fault. He was he was doing his job exemplary, and that's just the way it went. His bullet hit something, came apart into pieces, and hit a kid. And he never got over it. He didn't want to go back out on the street anymore. And it was him and me and one other guy that had, uh, that, had, had that experience. Anything
1: you'd like to share with somebody who uh, struggles? Oh, you got fears and loves,
0: right? Oh, of course I do. Oh, well, let's do some of those. <laughs> How can I come in let's without do, those? Let's do some of those. <laughs> Well, what do you want to start with, loves me uh, some.
1: No, give me some fears.
0: Ah. <laughs> well, which one do I like here? Um, give me three of each. Well, I'm afraid I've only got four loves to my 165 fears. <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be everybody else, too. Uh, that's how it shook out when I first started writing yeah. But, you know, as I pay attention. Um, I'm both afraid that I will have to use a weapon to defend my life again, and I'm also afraid that I won't have to. Still want that second chance? Um, I'm afraid that <laughs> I'm afraid that combat vets will hear this and feel that I'm just a cocksucking squid who was too cowardly to put my ass on the line, and having a gunfight as a security guard doesn't count, and therefore I'm not going to be able to help them. Uh, that, that's that's a big fear because there is some. There is some dick measuring going on, where I don't feel like ah, oh, my PTSD isn't like your PTSD. I didn't, I didn't blast anybody in in, uh, in Afghanistan, and so I always hope I can help those guys. And I'm afraid they're just not going to give a fuck because it's not the same thing.
1: I can tell you that every single trauma survivor does the same yeah. thing with their trauma. I
0: learned that listening to your show. <laughs> yep. yep. Um. Now I'm also afraid that I'll fail at every. Romantic relationship I have because there's something wrong with me or I'm doing something wrong that I can't figure out. That seems like a pretty common one. I think so. Give me some love. Uh, I love being my daughter's father. Uh, She's the thing I love most in the world. And I love that I get to have a lifetime learning who she is as she becomes that person under my love, care, and guidance. That's beautiful. Thank you. Um, (laughs) I love the view from my bathroom window. Of the park across the street and the mountains in the distance that I enjoy while I pee every morning. I watched
1: this documentary last night called Sample This, and I won't bore you with the whole thing about it, but all of these his- historical storylines had to cross for this album to be made, which became the most sampled album in hip hop history. Okay. And and an album that didn't sell at all, right? but it had some some tracks on it where there were just great sections that early hip-hop guys used. And um, I love when a documentary can thread historical storylines together like that, oh, yeah. and you see what a beautifully woven tapestry humanity oh. is.
0: Mm-hmm. That's... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I have my love of documentaries for more or less the same reason. I love to see yeah. that stuff. Um, I guess the, probably my biggest one is I love to have friends over to my house while I slow smoke a big chunk of well prepared pork for them while we drink great beer together. I just, I love cooking, barbecuing for my friends. That's among my most simple and, and pure joys that I have. I went right to uh, thinking you were going to say a big chunk
1: of hash. <laughs>
0: Oh, that's what the good beer is for. Yeah. Uh
1: I love when a guest comes and tells a story uh that is unlike any other story that I've heard before, and yet emotionally it's like every other story that I've heard before, and it reminds me, even though our circumstances are so much different in our lives, what we experience inside is so so um alike and i love i love being reminded of that yeah i love that <laughs> yeah <laughs> dan smith thank you so much You're welcome many many thanks to dan uh before we read some surveys i want to give some love to our uh, sh- our sponsor for this episode uh which is squarespace and i, I love squarespace it is just such a great way to uh, build and design your own website, it's super easy. I did it. It took me an hour, maybe two hours, to uh, do a beautiful website where I posted my favorite pictures uh, that I've taken of dogs at dog parks and uh, musical snippets that I wrote and and played. And uh, it's it's just so nice to be able to have a um, something that. Represents you out there uh, on the internet. And you can't beat uh, Squarespace for simplicity. It um, It's very intuitive. They have uh, templates that you can use. Uh, it looks professional. You don't have to know how to code or any of that BS. They have 24 7 customer support, and uh, it's only eight bucks a month. Uh, you can't beat that. And uh, you should, you, I can't speak highly enough of it. Go check it out. Go to squarespace.com. Uh, And uh, make sure you use the offer code MENTAL and you'll get uh, 10% off uh, your first purchase. And uh, it lets them know that you support them and you listen to this show, which uh, helps them decide to uh, advertise with us again. So uh, go check it out, squarespace.com, and use the offer code MENTAL. Squarespace, built it beautiful. All right, let's get to the uh, surveys. This one is the shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Elle. She is in her 20s. She's bisexual, was raised in a stable and safe environment. She's never been sexually abused. Not sure if she's been emotionally or physically abused. Darkest thoughts. Leaving everything in my life and running away. Leaving my family, my husband, my possessions, my name, everything. Going to another country and starting completely over. Darkest secrets. I've pulled hair out of my body for more than 10 years, probably 15, different parts of my body. I've had open sores all over my hands from digging at hairs and had to wear makeup on my hands every day. I pull hair out of my legs and pull my pubic hair. I have sores all over and haven't worn shorts in years because I can't show my legs. I can't wear a bathing suit and I just can't stop. I try to stop. The next thing I know, it's been an hour and I'm still pulling hairs. I'm sure there's got to be a support group somewhere. Um, you know, so many people struggle with uh, trichotillomania. Um, you, might, you might check into that. Um, this is filled out by Derek. He is straight in his 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, but he's been emotionally abused. He writes, my grandmother would always try to convince me that I would burn in hell and that no one would ever love me to the fullest because of my taste in music and lack of religion. She would always have more interest in her other grandchildren, buying them better presents, spending more time with them, even when my mom and I lived next door and even with her. I feel this treatment has caused me to become a chronic people pleaser and created my severe social anxiety. I'm afraid that if I don't make my friends and family happy, they'll leave me. I'm also too afraid to start new relationships and I blame it all on her. You know, it's so easy to stay stuck in that role because yeah, people do damage us, but once we become adults, you know, it's our responsibility to, to heal and to, um, ask for help and do the, unfortunately, the work that's involved in, in healing and recovering. Um, any positive experience with your abuser? She did allow me to stay with her after my mom died and would loan me money whenever I was desperate. Uh, darkest thoughts. I think about the people around me all dying and being free of them. When I'm driving, I think about just crashing the car and then what my funeral would be like. Darkest secrets. When I was around 12, I masturbated to the sound of my mom having sex with her boyfriend. I've also masturbated to um, my friend having sex and even his mother having sex. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, completely dominating a transgender uh, or a woman. And on the flip side, I want to be submissive to a woman or transgender. What if anything do you would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my grandmother that she damaged me emotionally. I would like to ask her why she treated me that way when my mom and I have spent most of our adult lives taking care of her. Um, what if anything do you wish for that my anxiety would dissipate and allow me to approach a woman so that I can try my hand at dating? Have you shared these things with others? This is the only time I've ever talked about these things. I've tried to in the past, but I freeze up. I'm so afraid of being judged and abandoned by friends or family that I could never do it. How do you feel after writing these things down? It's cathartic. The anonymity makes it so easy to do. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Simply, I would tell someone that I wish someone would tell me. You are so easy. Simply, I I would tell someone what I wish someone would tell me. You are so easy to love and deserve whatever you earn and deserve to be happy. Thank you for that, Derek. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself Scattered Showers. She is um, asexual. She's in her 30s. She was raised in a stable and safe environment. Uh, She's never been sexually abused uh, or physically abused. Although she says, not sure. Um, And she writes, I'm not sure if this counts. I was mercilessly bullied as a... Does that count as emotional abuse, being mercilessly bullied? I think it might. Um... I was mercilessly bullied as a child in middle and high school, to the point where I was scared to go to school and had to be homeschooled since I was increasingly missing or failing school because of this. I was considered a bad kid because I never told anyone about the bullying, so outwardly it just seemed that I was unruly. The bullying was mostly verbal. I'm not sure if this counts as abuse or not. I had no friends while in school. I was the quiet girl. I was scared to speak because I would always be mocked. I had nicknames including a rat and hairy legs. My parents wouldn't let me shave my legs until middle school and the name stuck. Students would steal or hide my things, my clothes in gym class, my books, my purse, etc. The funniest part about this, this was a Catholic school and I am now an atheist. This experience left a lasting impression on me. Depression social anxiety awkwardness in talking and voicing my opinion i now think everyone hates me and i'm in my 30s any positive experience with your abusers no darkest thoughts i haven't even told my therapist this i'm not sure if it's my medication or if it's just me but i now consider myself asexual to the point where general closeness is a problem Now I even feel repulsed by the idea of sex with males or females. I love my husband, but at this point I don't even care if he were to go have sex with someone else as long as I don't have to be involved. Even kissing is starting to get to me, and I find nothing good about the naked human body. In fact, it grosses me out. I know that sounds childish. This may be tearing my marriage apart. My medication may be a cause, but I am unwilling to change my medication. I don't want to go through the hell of starting a new med and stopping one I've been on for six plus years. Darkest Secrets. My husband doesn't know I'm on any medication. He thinks I'm off of them. He hates the idea of being on meds. Well, you know, then he doesn't have to take them, but he should fuck off as to whether or not you take them. Sorry, got a little angry. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Back before I was asexual, I would get off on thinking about a line of men holding me down and raping me one after the other. Sounds so bad when I type that out. Wow, I sound like a freak. No, you don't. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like the people who bullied me to know how I feel. I hope if they have kids, they are not enabling that to happen to someone else. Maybe this is the reason I never want or like children. Sorry if that offends anyone. What, if anything, do you wish for? Courage to talk to people normally without second-guessing what I say or do. Have you shared these things with others? No, I'm too embarrassed. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel a lot better, as nobody else knows about these things. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I'd like to let them know that they are not alone. And I'm going to ditto that and remind you that you're not alone. And don't ever underestimate the damage that bullying can do. And uh, I really hope you you heal and you reach out for help and don't try to handle all that stuff on your own. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself. This is your brain on pugs. And she writes, I wouldn't tell this to anyone else. It's possible nobody would will believe me now. This makes me sound completely off my rocker. Not long ago, I got home after an exhausting day at work, as tired as I was, I crashed on the bed in my clothes. Not being an, except, an experienced napper God how I wish my body would sleep whenever I wanted it to, I woke up in a fright. It was seven o'clock. In my delirious panic state, I rushed to clean up and get dressed for work. I drove all the way to work, not considering how weird it was that the traffic was non-existent. I walk in the doors of my office building to see a coworker heading out and saying, "Wow, you're here late." What the fuck? I was thinking as I looked at my phone. It was fucking 7 p.m. Holy shit. People were still there and probably wondering why I just walked in. I proceeded up the elevator to my office suite, then to my desk, banged around some drawers and pretended I had forgotten my phone at work. I hastily made it home. That feeling of going back to bed was the most delicious feeling in the world. I wonder if I'm alone in this or if this sort of incident has happened to anyone else. I'm thoroughly embarrassed. I think that's fantastic. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself lump. She's bisexual. She's in her forties. She was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. My dad would sleepwalk and sometimes get in bed with me. I don't remember anything happening you know, that sends just alarm bells to me. That is, you know, I think very convenient that your father, uh, you know, (laughs) anyway. I don't remember anything happening, but the memories are gray and hazy. In so many of my memories, I don't remember where my mom was when he would do weird things like that. He would want to watch after I used the bathroom to make sure I was wiping correctly when I was 10. Weird things that would go on for a while until he was on to the next thing that, as an adult, I now know are crazily inappropriate uh she's been physically abused and emotionally abused my dad was emotionally abusive to my whole family although i usually bore the brunt of his cruelty the example that stands out most is that he promised to take me to the state fair i was so excited because i'd never been to a fair before i was excited and anxious the two weeks until it opened and it was all i could talk about we woke up early and drove down the parking lot was as far as we got because as i was getting ready to get out of the car he laughed and said i said i would bring you I didn't say you were going in. Then we drove home. He would also get carried away when he would spank me or withhold food from me, but still force me to sit at the table while he ate. I hate the fucker. Uh, Any positive experiences? Even the positive moments were tinged with mean or snide remarks. Darkest thoughts. I have recurring dreams where my dad is having sex with me, and I wake up sickened but aroused. Then I can't get it out of my head. It gets stuck in a loop. Darkest Secrets. I would get so enraged. Oh, I think Carla's home. I'm going to pause. All right, uh, continuing. Uh, darkest Secrets. I would get so enraged at some of the things my dad did that I decided to kill him. In my immature mind, I would get away with it because I was underage. My mistake was writing down my detailed plan, gore and all in my secret journal that my mom found in red. She made me promise on the love we had for each other that I wouldn't. It's the only promise I regret keeping mostly because he is such an asshole. I think he sounds like a terrific guy. I think you're I think you're judging him. He I think you need to give him a uh a, a pass on all that stuff. <laughs> Obviously I'm kidding. Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Big hairy males fucking a smaller man hard in the ass bareback so that I can see the cum dripping out after they all take turns coming inside him. I can feel my clit getting hard and throbby just writing that. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone that you haven't been able to? I would like to ask my mother why she didn't believe my sister at first when she told her that she'd been sexually molested. My mom came to me and asked if I thought my sister was making it up. I said she would have no reason to lie, and she seemed to accept my answer. But why would she even ask that? I can't ask her anything because she pretends not to hear you. She ignores me and changes the subject and walks away if you press the issue or anything she isn't comfortable with. What if anything do you wish for? I wish I could just I wish I could have had the strength to stand up for myself. I wish I were strong now instead of feeling like I'm really just skating by. Have you shared these things with others? I share most uh all of I share most all of it with my wife, including my sexual fantasies and bad dreams because I trust her so much and she doesn't judge me. I tend to gloss over things because I don't want her to hate my mom. You know, I used to do that with my mom and uh God for twenty twenty years um because I knew my my wife uh didn't like my mom and uh it's kind of nice to be on this <laughs> on the same page and um I'd encourage you to let your let your wife have her own feelings about about your mom and yeah, how do you feel after writing these things down? I have a horrible pain in my neck because I didn't realize it'd been clenching and unclenching my jaw while I was writing this. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? If you share my thoughts and experiences, I would like to give you a hug. I know how exhausting it can be just to breathe in and out. Thank you for that. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Skirt Chaser version 2.0. He writes one day recently i found myself at the mall waiting on an order for chinese takeout as i twiddled my thumbs in the foyer of the restaurant i saw a girl about 20 years old and wearing a very revealing uh, outfit walk into a nearby 711 type store and because i currently battle sex and love addiction i immediately dashed over for a better look i got in line behind her and whipped out my phone to snap a few pics of her behind to share with a friend. Yes, creepy, I know, but I'm working on it. As she rounded up her purchases and left me at the counter, I had to make up a reason for being in line for my previous seven minutes. I asked for a lotto ticket and won $520 on the spot. It was one of the very few times in my, very few times my inability to not be a creep kind of paid off. i I partly didn't want to read that because I didn't want it to sound like I was encouraging that kind of behavior, but it's just so, it's just so awful it's just so awful This is... This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself anti-social social social worker. Um, She is bisexual. She's in her 30s. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Um, I don't know if casual rape or sexual domestic violence counts, counts. Um, but I did experience those. Uh, I would say yes fucking definitely counts um i was date raped a few times and she has date raped in parentheses Uh, i had one boyfriend who pressured me into having sex right after an abortion which led to another pregnancy and another abortion Uh, she's been physically and emotionally abused Uh, i had a very dysfunctional relationship from age 16 to age 18. he was an he was older than me by five years homeless and living under a bridge in my suburban town He strangled me once, leaving bruises on my neck and threw me up against walls a few times during arguments. He also emotionally manipulated me into thinking I had to, quote, save him. It got so bad that my mom was contemplating putting a hit out on him and eventually told me not to return to my home state to keep me away from him. Any positive experience with your abusers? The only positive experience was when he acknowledged and apologized many years later darkest thoughts i actually planned to kill a homeless person once just to experience it i nearly acted on it but thankfully did not i also manipulated my ex-husband to take bigger risks and to try to mug an older woman when we were in our heroin addiction darkest secrets i've done many untoward things i did uh, i did once partially abuse a baby boy i was babysitting masturbating on a dryer while rubbing his penis against it Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Right now, I'm pretty asexual. Although I'm married, we haven't had sex in over two years. I'm not really interested in anyone right now. In the past, I was very promiscuous with many, many partners, also involved in BDSM, prostitution, threesomes, relationships with women, etc. When I do masturbate, rarely, it sometimes involves fantasies involving rape of other women. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I feel like I'm pretty outspoken. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I didn't feel that I had to keep my emotions in check around my family. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, most of them with my husband or therapists. How do you feel after writing these things down? The same. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? That you can live with these things in your past. They do not have to define you or color your future. Thank you for that. Uh, This one is pretty graphic. Um but I wanted to read it anyway because we we rarely have um, a survey filled out by um, the abuser that goes into, um, I'm just gonna read it. And uh, I've debated on whether or not to read it because it it made me uncomfortable reading it. But um, I think, I don't know. I think I should read it. This is from the babysitter survey, and this was filled out by a guy who calls himself Bob uh, 12, 12, 12, just. Um, he was the babysitter. Oh, he's male. He's straight. He's in his 30s. He was raised in a stable and safe environment, and he's never been sexually abused. Um, he writes, I was 13 and was sitting the neighbor kids from about 4 p.m. till 11 p.m. on a weekly basis. One night, after the brother, eleven and three sisters, maybe ten, seven, and six, all fell asleep in various locations of the living room, having watched movies, I couldn't resist looking in the shorts leg of the oldest sister. I'd been occupied with that thought for some time, and now I thought I had my chance. looking up her shorts, I could barely see in the dark room in the dark room, so I reached in to touch her as slowly as I could. I pulled her panties aside and gradually got a finger inside her pussy without waking her. It was such a new thing that I couldn't help myself and started jacking off. I came into a nearby pillow and gently pulled my finger out. This happened three times with the oldest sister and once at a sleepover with a different girl of about that age. Uh... I've told one friend about 90% of what happened. I knew it wasn't normal. I still think about it, but less less frequently over the years. I feel equal parts shame and sexual excitement. Um, remembering these things, what feelings come up? Uh, it's still erotic every time I think of it. Do you feel any damage was done? Uh, I don't think so, but I'm terrified at the thought of apologizing and her not knowing it happened till then. Um well, let me just say, I don't think there's any chance that somebody could sleep through that. So if you have the chance to apologize to her, I would I would do it. Um, if you're a parent, has your experience influenced how you view your children being babysat. It is a little unsettling, but I think I'm an outlier, not the norm. Yeah, that thought makes me feel better about it. Jesus. What really scares me is if we have a daughter, quote, how how safe would she be? Well, you know, if there's any if there's any question in your mind about that, I would I would not have children. And that's just my my personal opinion. But uh thank you for Thank you for filling that out. Um, This is a struggle in a sentence survey, and this was filled out by a woman who calls herself Geronimo. And uh, about her anxiety, she writes, it feels like the only relief is to be squeezed real tight or stabbed in the heart. About her love addiction, like my life is on the brink of being perfect and a man needs to come into my life to push me over the edge. About her codependency, I will die if my family isn't okay. And then a snapshot from her life, which is actually pretty long, but um, very interesting. She writes, when I'm really in my love addiction, I need someone to be the object of my affection. I haven't had a romantic relationship before, so I tend to grow attached to celebrities, people online, even friends occasionally. It got particularly out of control when I became obsessed with my college professor in recent weeks. He isn't some old, wise-looking man with glasses and a tweed blazer. He's maybe in his late thirties, fit, no wrinkles, no glasses. I grew attached to the idea of being with him. He was mesmerizing in lecture. He's funny, a great speaker, and damned as he know his stuff, intelligence is a huge turn-on. It started out slow, with me just imagining us together when I was bored. I would sometimes daydream a bit in class. At the end of the term, we had a single one-on-one conversation, and that was it that began the week-long descent into obsession and then subsequent agony for a week after that meeting an innocent conversation about an assignment i rode a constant anxiety high i barely ate i had trouble sleeping it wasn't entirely unpleasant because i was hopped up on feeling in love i constantly imagined us together how it would happen our first date having sex us planning our wedding The constant bursting anxiety was giving me manic periods of high energy. I was happy, but if it continued any longer, I felt like my chest would explode. I had to do something. I'm not a brave or assertive person, but I still considered going into his office and getting this off my chest. Before I decided to talk to him or not, I did what most people do. Looked him up on the internet, searching for any other details of his life or Facebook photos to latch onto and fuel the fantasy. On page two of the results, clear as day, wedding registry fuck in less than two months he's going to be married after a week of this insane dreaming wishing it all came crashing down i wandered around my apartment crying for two hours hyperventilating snot the whole nine yards I felt like there was no way I was going to settle down and have any dreamy, happy future without him, never mind the fact that we only had one conversation. I'm not one of those girls who steal someone's man. I'm a child of infidelity-fueled divorce. No way in hell I'd do that to someone. So for the rest of the day, I felt so down, so horrible about myself. I could only think, why not me? What is wrong with me? Why her? I'm such a worthless piece of shit and a fucking idiot for letting myself get so carried away with nothing to fuel it but fantasies. Thank you for sharing that. And that. That is such a great description of love addiction and fantasy addiction. And there are support groups for that that can help you with that because it is not about the other person. It's about the escape as, a, as a, an unhealthy coping mechanism. Um, this is from, uh, the being hospitalized, uh, survey. And this was filled out by a woman who calls herself P and, uh, she's in her thirties and she was hospitalized the first time for a suicide attempt. The second time was for suicidal thoughts and describe your experience. And she writes, the first hospital I was at was nice, but I didn't realize how nice until I experienced the second hospital. The second hospital, the psych ward was the last floor in use in a building that was going to be... Uh, It says turned down but it must be burned down and it looked like a ward that nobody had cared about for a very long time. The doctors were horrible and I think I spent about one hour with a doctor over my eight-day stay. The group therapy was a joke and had absolutely no direction. They were literally letting the crazies run the session. The social workers had no control. In one session, a fellow patient was wearing a gown with nothing underneath and gave everyone a good look at his balls when he crossed his leg over his knee. Apparently, you've never heard of testicle therapy. Uh, The social workers were useless and never answered any of my many questions. Uh, questions. Every answer was, I'll get back to you. There was no prep for leaving, just a nurse who walked me out and said, good luck. The bus route is to your right. My first hospital was in another state and was about as opposite of an experience as possible. The staff actually worked with me to make an exit plan, had meetings with my friends and family, and were even helpful after I was discharged and needed assistance in finding a new doctor. The people in this ward were the biggest character I've ever met and I really thought I was being punked at one point. Thank you for that. This is an awful moment filled out by uh, Serene Serena. Uh, she writes and she's 16. She writes, I hold my own hand sometimes. It's embarrassing. I like to pretend I'm another person and tell myself it will be okay. My mom drinks and it scares me. My father might as well have left considering how silent he is. And here I am hiding under the blanket so my mom doesn't come in and harass me. And I'm holding my hand and telling myself to stop crying because they aren't worth my fucking tears. I also have an abundance of stuffed animals. Maybe an inanimate object cares. I feel straight up pain spreading through my chest when I think about everything. I just want a drug to numb it all away. You know there's always a couple of moments in the podcast when I just read something that that just goes right through me and um god i wish I wish that we could. <laughs> We could do something for you. That is just, that is so, it's awful Um it's, it's so heartbreakingly beautiful that you're holding your own hand. Um, just hang in there, just hang in there. You know you're you you have such good instincts, I really think that you you are going to be a strong person who really, really loves herself, and when you get out of that house you're you're really gonna you're really gonna blossom. you know to to have the intuition to to hold your own hand um, is miraculous. And that's what I think is so, that's why that moves me so much. Um, You'll probably wind up being an amazing therapist. And know that, that somebody with the kind of instinct that you have to take care of yourself like that, all the shit that you've been through you will be able to inspire other people because you clearly have uh, like I said, an intuition that's that's the life I envision for you and if you stray from it uh, you will be dead to me this is this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Mr. Pretty Boy He's straight in his 20s. He was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. He was a victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, since I was six or maybe even younger, Two of my older male cousins fooled around with me in bed when I slept over at their house, which was quite often because my dad visited my aunt a lot. The first few times, I thought they were just playing around, but they eventually progressed to actually penetrate me. I just remember I was in pain and silently crying, scared of waking others up. I tried to get up and leave, but they easily overpowered me. After the first few times, I just gave up and would disassociate disassociate, and shut down as they were doing, quote, their thing. This lasted until I was 14. When I was nine, I went to have my hair cut alone for the first time. I was so excited and proud of myself. I think you know where this one is going. Paul. To this day, I can't go to the barber's alone. During junior high, every time the headmaster of my school walked by me and no one was around, he'd suddenly grab my crotch or slap my ass and tell me, Hey, pretty boy. I tried to stop him, but he threatened to tell my parents, Uh, that I sold porn in the school, which wasn't true. The list goes on. I don't want to take too much of your time. You're not taking too much of my time. Um... He's been physically and emotionally abused. My father occasionally hit me with his belt. A cord or whatever was around him. He had me believe that the punishments were for my own benefit and they'd make me a better man. I agreed with him for years until I listened to your podcast and finally went to therapy. Once he slapped me so hard that I hit the wall behind me and passed out. I woke up a while later in the same position. My dad was watching the news and told me that I'd be a stronger man when I grew up because of him. Uh, I agreed. My mother consciously guilt trips me to do whatever she wants, and if I refuse, she tells me that I'm stupid and will never amount to anything. She still does that even though I'm putting myself through graduate school. Any positive experiences with your abusers? Before I found your podcast and started to go to therapy, I thought that I came from a perfect family and my parents and siblings were wonderful and no one could ever be better than them. To their credit, at times they were very kind to me and helped me financially as well, but they were never really around much and were always working. My feelings towards them has changed significantly in the past year, but they still have no idea. Every time I have contact with them, I have to put on a mask and pretend that everything is fine. Darkest thoughts. I hate my family. I hate the house I grew up in. I hate that city. I hate my relatives. I hate my name. I love my phone, my headphones, and my podcasts. What are your darkest secrets? I fake all my orgasms all the time because I can't be present in the moment and still disassociate. My partner hasn't suspected anything yet. I dread the day that I have to give in and not use a condom. How do I fake it then? I think you talked to your partner. I think you talked to her and you shared. Maybe, maybe you read this survey. Or give her your headphones. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I like to be tied down and dominated by an older woman. Have her fuck me with a dildo while jerking me off aggressively and slapping me in the face. Too much? Question mark. Nope. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone that you haven't been able to? Dad, I don't believe in God, especially not yours. Your nephews abused me for eight years, just a few yards from where you slept. I hate that you were okay with hitting me. I attempted suicide and you didn't even find out. Mom, just shut the fuck up for once. What if anything do you wish for? A pony. (laughs) And he puts a smiley face. I wish the meds would start working and I didn't have to go through so many of them to find the right one. Have you shared these things with others? I've only, told those, I've only told these to my therapist, well, some of them anyway. She's wonderful and very understanding. She acted very professionally and didn't make me feel like a freak when I finally decided to tell her about the things that happened to me. How do you feel after writing these things down? I'm afraid I wrote too much and you're going to get bored after reading the first few lines. I got very angry while writing it, but as I went along, it made me feel a lot better to see the words for the first time written down. It's official. I'm fucked up. Can I join the club now? yes you're in the club uh is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences talk to someone the longer you hold it in the harder it'll be to work through you're not a freak fucked up maybe but not a freak and i love you it was beautiful beautiful survey beautiful 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 except for the horrible shit but um it's just amazing the sense of of people's souls I I get from reading the surveys. It's like I can read one of one of you guys' surveys and feel like I know you better than people I've known for my entire life. This is I love this name. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Alexandra the Not-So-Great. She is straight She's in her 50s. She was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, She was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She writes, "Uh, I was in the army, fresh out of basic training, and had been stationed in Germany. I was there for a few days when a high-ranking man asked me out, and I said yes. After going to the club for a few drinks, we each had two, we left, and he ended up driving to a field out in the middle of nowhere. He very coldly told me he wanted sex, and when I indicated I didn't feel comfortable with that, he told me that he had been nice to me, therefore I owed it to him, and told me basically to do it or get out of the car. I started crying and opened the door to get out. He grabbed my arm and told me I was not going anywhere until we, quote, made love That is sickening. After that, I complied with whatever he wanted me to do just to get it over with. He took me to my barracks, and as I got out of the car, he said very casually, maybe we can do this again sometimes. I said nothing but was still crying. I never reported him. I thought no one would believe me or that I would get in trouble. For years, I blamed myself for getting into the car of someone I didn't know and for not fighting him off. I thought people would judge me if they knew what had happened. I've been to therapy, and I now realize it's not my fault. Um, she's not sure if she's been physically or emotionally abused. Um, no, it it it's, this probably happened in the in the '80s, and it really doesn't seem like. The military's attitude towards this has changed that much. That, that is, that is uh, upsetting. Um, ever been physically or emotionally abused? Not sure. Uh, any positive experiences with your abusers? No, I avoided the guy who raped me and never spoke to him again. I fantasized about putting sugar in his gas tank or shooting him in his genitals with my M16. If I can make a recommendation, make sure that the uh, the bullet is a steel core bullet. Actually, no, you, you don't. You want the one that flattens out. Uh, darkest thoughts. Uh, I've thought about shooting people and then shooting myself. This is so unlike me and something I would never act on. Darkest secrets. I took opiate. Pain killers that had been prescribed to my sister who died of cancer two months ago. I finally had to admit to myself that I have a drug problem, but I'm terrified to tell anyone or seek help. Oh, please do. And then uh, that that's the end of her survey. She didn't fill out any more. But if you're listening to this, please, please go get help. There's so much help for uh, alcohol and drug addiction. Um, I encourage you. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Pizza Panic Pooper. Uh, she writes, I was having a day where it felt like I couldn't escape my anxiety and depression about an upcoming event. I decided to treat myself to a takeaway pizza and stood in the takeaway uh, waiting for it to be ready when I began to have my second ever extreme panic attack. Everything went blurry and I couldn't see or stand properly. I draped myself onto the counter with my legs buckling as my body was so floppy, thinking what the fuck is happening to me, but unable to speak or type properly to my friend online. I don't remember how long this went on for until I felt myself shit myself, but was so disoriented that I didn't know what was happening. I promptly grabbed my pizza and sat down on the curb outside for a while, feeling scared and disgusted at myself while slowly regaining my vision and calming down. I am not going into that pizza place again anytime soon. <laughs> oh, that is awful. Thank you for that. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by... um. She calls herself Tiffany. She is straight she's in her 30s she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment never been sexually abused not sure if she's been physically or emotionally she writes i say not sure because some of what my family parents and sister have said to me feel emotionally abusive but i don't want to misuse the term for example when i was a teenager my mom and i were arguing and told me how much she hated living this felt like a way to make me feel guilty for being upset with her another time my sister and i were having a fight and and she said maybe i should just kill myself my father repeatedly blamed. That is, by the way, that is abusive. That is total emotional abuse. Um, my father repeatedly blamed me for any disruption in family routine. And on one occasion, as he was shaking me violently, said something like, "If you don't listen, I'll just throw you down the stairs." Another less dramatic time, as I was preparing to leave for college and having a hard time getting all my tasks done while working, etc., he yelled at me about not packing up my bedroom fast enough and said, you need to pack it up, your mother and I want to move on with our lives." Yeah, that's abuse. Uh, Any positive experiences? If the above counts, then yeah, it's totally fucked up because they're my family and just admitting that makes me feel shitty. From the outside and to everyone we know, they are inherently good people. Talking badly of them makes me feel like it's my fault, my misunderstanding, and that's really me who's the shithead. Well, you know, when you have an, an emotionally abusive, uh, an, an emotionally manipulative mom that makes you, that, that puts her emotional needs ahead of yours by saying the things that she said, and then a dad who is just chopping away at your self-esteem, Of of, of course, you know, you're going to be gaslighted into thinking that you're the person with the problem. Um, Darkest thoughts. I want my parents, sister, and one friend in particular to see me as if I'm in a glass box every morning as I pinch and pull at my skin, sometimes audibly saying how much I hate my body and how much I just hate myself. I want them to see that and feel the pain I feel every day. It doesn't give me pleasure to know it would hurt them. It gives me relief. That is profound. That is profound. That's like a little poem. Uh, she writes, I think about what my funeral would be like and I'm afraid that people won't care. I have thoughts of what suicide for me would be. I want to live and I'm not afraid of committing suicide, but I think about and sometimes visualize different scenarios, a train, a bridge, etc. Uh, I want to punch people in the face repeatedly when they discredit my opinions or feelings. Um, Oh God, I had a moment today. Uh, I was driving and I'm stopped at a light and there's a guy in front of me and we're in the left turn lane and the light turns green, you know, the left arrow and everybody else in the other left turn lane is going. And so, you know, I usually give it a couple of seconds and then I tap on the horn. I do it, guy still doesn't move. I do it again, he very slowly starts driving like five miles an hour. And he's we kind of weaving from lane to lane, you know, typical asshole on the phone. But he's in a Mercedes with completely tinted windows, so, so I, I can't really see if he's on his phone. But I'm I'm behind him, and he he's going easily half the speed limit, drifting from lane to lane. So when I can, I finally pass him, and I pull up even with him to try to see who who the fuck is this idiot. I can't see because it's tinted. So I go past him. And I try to get in front of him because I need to go left again. And he speeds up. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? So I speed up. I get around around him and we're at the next light. And he rolls his window down and I roll my window down. And can I tell you how relieved I was when I saw that he was smaller than me? (laughs) Because then I could say whatever I wanted. And I haven't done this in years, but I was just like... Get your face out of your fucking phone, and he's telling me how he's gonna fuck my wife, and I should have told him that she's uh, she's actually in Chicago right now. So uh, why don't you drive like an asshole to the airport? Anyway, I just thought I'd share that with you, and I felt I felt terrible afterwards, not because not because of what I said to him, but because I I gave my dignity away you know hold on one second i don't like giving my dignity away feels good for about a second to lash out and then i feel like gross anyway uh where was i with this one darkest secrets i heard this on a survey a couple of weeks ago and it rang true i feel like when my mother dies i won't be as sad as i should be Uh, When I was eight years old, I stepped on a scale and weighed five pounds more than my two friends. From that day forward, I knew I was fat. I've had body image issues my whole life. I have an eating disorder that nobody except my therapist and I knows about. I'm afraid that when I drink, which is not very often, I use it to numb my feelings. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I don't have any other than I want to be taken care of and told slash shown what to do not in a violent submissive s&m way just in a way that makes me feel like i am not the one that has to be in control or responsible sharing that makes me nervous because i think it's what i want in other parts of my life as well and i feel it'll never happen but if anything we'd like to say to someone you haven't been able to i want to tell my mother that she doesn't know how to love me i'm pretty sure she doesn't like me and that as a result i will continue to d- disappoint her I want to tell my coach that I have a problem with food. He knows a little already, but I want to really tell him. I'm afraid he won't be able to handle it, so I don't. I want to tell my so-called best friend that I need her to just listen and stop robotically trying to fix my life. I can't be vulnerable with her because she makes me feel like all I have are problems. What, if anything, do you wish for? I long for the day that I can look at myself in the mirror and love what is reflected back with appreciation and compassion for all the imperfections, internally and externally. Have you shared these things with others? My therapist knows most of this. The thing she doesn't know is not for lack of sharing. It's for lack of time. When I entered therapy, I told myself I would always be 100% honest with her. To this day, I have been, but there's lots of ground to cover and I'm continually remembering things that I have blocked out. How do you feel after writing these things down? Scared, fucked up, relieved for the form to express, but also really believe that my problems, slash issues, slash hangups, slash experiences are so lightweight in compared to others, in comparison to others. Uh, they are not. Let me assure you, they are not. Uh, how can I fucking complain about this bullshit when I am safe, moderately successful, and there are others who have been abused so much more uh, drastically? Um, you know, yeah, I I've I'm not gonna get up on my on my soapbox. All I'm gonna say is your, the abuse that happened to you is valid. And if you can allow yourself to give weight to what happened to you, not to punish the people who did it, but to get in touch with the feelings that are overwhelming you and would overwhelm anyone that that's going to help you heal um she writes i feel like the walking definition of first world problems and constantly want to say to myself get over yourself it's not that bad i feel validated and and invalidated at the same time anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences don't compare your experiences and feelings, etc., to other people. Your reality is exactly that, your reality. Please have compassion for yourself and know that you are worthy of love, connection, and happiness. And there are people out there that will be there for you. Isn't it so amazing how we can so easily give that compassion and bullseye insight to somebody else? But we just create this wall where we can't, Allow ourselves to be worthy of it. Sending you some love. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Merlin. She writes, I've suffered from depression and anxiety for over a decade, and I've had suicidal thoughts every day for many years. This year, year I finally got into therapy and found a psychiatrist. This past week, between mindfulness, medication, quality vacation time with family, and setting boundaries with my mom, I've actually gone days without a single suicidal thought. I'm amazed and a little scared, but now I finally feel like taking care of my mental health is working. That's beautiful that is just beautiful and I want to read another one. This is the last one, and uh, it's kind of along the same The same line this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself ever so happy and she writes, uh, I came upon one of your earlier surveys where a young woman who was in college I felt absolutely horrible about herself, convinced she was disappointing everyone in her life because she wasn't thriving and had no direction or purpose. You recommended that she read the book, Healing the Shame that Binds. I thought, I already have this book, might as well dive right in. I got through most of it in this past week and I feel like my FedEx package of understanding and meaning to my life has arrived. I woke up today and I didn't want to go right back to sleep. I don't feel depressed or overwhelmed or really anxious. I'm not scared of the day ahead of me. I'm in the most messiest room possible, and I feel no shame for not having cleaned yet. I've looked forward to waking up happy like this for months now. I think I might even start my day off with a nice comforting shower. No guilt that I'm not being productive. Fuck productivity. I'm going to enjoy today. I literally can't remember the last time I woke up and actually looked forward to starting my day. I could honestly cry. I keep waiting for the other shoe to drop and for those negative, self-critical thoughts and guilt to come and tear me down. They don't. They are so weak and unconvincing that I ignore them. Beautiful. Beautiful. Man, I love doing this. Just love it. Thank you, guys. I'm so grateful. So grateful for the... uh, the input I get from you, the great guests I have, the support, both uh, both emotionally and financially, um, that you help keep the podcast going. Um, oh, I forgot to make that announcement. Uh, who gives a shit? Thanks for listening.
0: Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody up I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.